Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, June 25th, 2015. And tonight is, like last week, all about the devil and the details for rescission of consumer loans. Tonight's episode is all about how late can a consumer rescind? How do we read the Jessenowski decision? gotten a lot of questions and that's why I'm devoting this program to this with people uh, who are consulting with lawyers and others who disagree with me on what I'm telling you. Just like they disagreed from 2007 to 2014 when I said that about TILA rescission that no lawsuit is required. No tender is required. The statute is clear. The court lacks authority to interpret a statute that it's that is clear on its face. Time will tell if my views are once again confirmed. I am sure that I'm right in what I'm saying. And I have consulted with many uh, attorneys and academics who also agree with me. And I'll tell you why I say that even if the rescission is subject to being vacated, that it is still the ultimate discovery tool that results in getting the same results as rescission. But in order to get those results either way, through rescission or in an action brought by the banks to vacate the rescission, you have to send the rescission. So here is the clue. The banks have to prove the loan, and they have to prove their standing in the chain of ownership of the loan, and they can't do it with the note or with the mortgage, nor can they do it with any assignment, endorsement, or power of attorney. To make a long story short, they can't do it. And they are getting ready to do battle on these issues, and they're going to try to suck people into arguments that they shouldn't even allow themselves to be drawn into. And that's why we have the rescission package, and that's why I've done so much work on the blog and on the radio show about rescission because it's very easy to fall into one of the trap doors 
that the banks are going to be putting out for us. They're they're certainly not rolling out the red carpet. I am broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lives Blog, GTC Honors, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lives Blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. By the way, our new website should be up in the next 10 days. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. Living Lives with over 10.5 million visits is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, consumer loans, and even student loans. Our mission is to share as much information as we can to help beleaguered homeowners and other people who may not be aware of the effect the housing crisis has had on their lives. And we are accomplishing our mission here as more and more lawyers, judges, and even lay people are seeing that the facts are not as they appear on the paperwork. The papers that are being used by banks, trustees, and servicers to collect or to foreclose. They don't have a right to do either one. And for the judges that don't get it, the U.S. Supreme Court explained it to them. The court, the child judge, may not interpret a statute that is clear on its face. They don't have a right to impose their view of it when the statute is clear on its face. If they want to impose their view on it, they have to find a specific ambiguity and state their finding of that ambiguity and then resolve it. But they can't do that until a rescission. Why not? Because the ultimate court in the land, the U.S. Supreme Court, has said that the Teela rescission statutes are not ambiguous, and therefore they are not subject to interpretation. And Jessenowski decided on January 13, 2015, which became final a little after that, um, reconsider its finality in February, made it very clear that the right of a judge to interpret a statute is limited to only those circumstances where the judge finds an ambiguity and can state it and then resolves it. And if you look at the wording in the Jesenowski case, the Supreme Court unanimously stated, and I quote, the language leaves no doubt that rescission is affected when the borrower notifies the creditor of his intention to rescind. Now, that means just what it says. When you send that letter, when you put it in the mail, the rescission is there is no contingency allowed. The statute says it, the Federal Reserve says it in Reg Z, and now the Supreme Court has said it. But other people are reading into the Supreme Court decision 
despite the fact that they're actually making a distinction, just as I am. Because following that sentence that I just read to you comes the added sentence, quote, so long as the borrower notifies within three years after the transaction is consummated, his rescission is timely. So there's a difference between when the rescission is effective and when it is, when it is timely. These are close distinctions. They're technical. And this is why I tell people that despite Congress's intent to give you the right to be able to cancel the deal without going to a lawyer and without getting an order from a judge, despite all that, the fact remains that there's going to be considerable attempts at litigation by the banks in order to escape the consequences of rescission. They will fail, ultimately. But those who don't do their homework are going to be just like we had over the last uh, seven, eight years. They are going to be responsible for some what we call bad decisions because they did not present this in the correct manner. So I'm doing my best to get my views out there and I, as always, I invite contrary views as well as those that supplement mine. Um, I'm looking for what will get traction for consumers when, after they have rescinded. And after they have rescinded, the thing to keep in mind is that the statute, the Federal Reserve, and the Supreme Court says the loan contract is over. The note and mortgage are void. That doesn't mean the bank can't come back and sue to vacate the, the rescission, either because of the statute of limitations, which is the topic tonight in three years, or for any other reason. So the first thing that stands out in the Jesenowski decision is that distinction between when the rescission is effective and when it is timely. Scalia made that distinction. And that's because the lender might waive any attack on the rescission and could comply without raising objections. I mentioned last week that there's a some experiments coming out from Aquin and a variety of other parties where they're offering the note and the satisfaction of mortgage provided the borrower comes up with the money. Well, that's not the way TILA rescission works. And as the Supreme Court stated very clearly and expressly in, uh, in the same words that I am, the Truth in Lending Act is a statutory remedy. It does not incorporate common law rescission. It does not incorporate any of those other doctrines. It is clear on its face, and there's nothing else to do about it. So if the rescission is effective on the date that it was mailed, then the whoever is saying that they are the lender, and that's another whole issue that's going to be in litigation, because when it comes to actually coming up with money if the borrower sues for enforcement of the rescission and to get the disgorgement of all money, 
then all of a sudden they're going to back off and say, well, I'm not really the lender, it's somebody else. But whoever the lender is, let's say they exist. I don't think they do, but let's assume that they do exist. They have to come and give you the canceled note. They have to file a satisfaction of mortgage, even though the mortgage is already void, but in the chain of title, it's still there in the county records. One of the things not addressed by the statute, but it, but which is addressed in state statutes, is uh, you can always record your notice of rescission, and that probably has the same legal effect, although it might not be interpreted as such by judges who hate the Truth in Lending Act and who hate rescission under the Truth in Lending Act even more. So sending the rescission after the three-day, three-year period means it is untimely. But that measure of the three years is something we're going to talk about. But it doesn't mean, it may be untimely, but it doesn't mean it is not effective. The fact that it is untimely raises an issue that the bank can come in, sue the borrower, and say, you sent us uh, a letter of rescission when, in fact, it was untimely. How do they do that? Well, they first they got to prove their standing to make any statement in court. To do that without the note and mortgage. Why? Because the note and mortgage were already rendered void by the rescission. So they have to come up with the real McCoy when they go to court. They have to come up with the proof of the loan, and they have to come up with proof of the transactions which they have skated around by using the note and the endorsements and the assignments and the powers of attorney, all those things which imply that a transaction occurred, they're going to have to actually show the transaction. little hint here, they can't do it. So if the lender chooses to file a lawsuit claiming that the rescission was not timely and that it should be vacated, then they would have to do two things. Prove their right to be in court without benefit of the note and mortgage, and then they must plead and prove their case. Both will be very difficult for the banks in the modern era of false securitization. After rescission is sent, there is no pending claim. Let me repeat that. After rescission is sent, there is no pending claim. In fact, I would argue that not even the borrower could reinstate the note and mortgage because according to the statute and according to the Supreme Court and according to the Federal Reserve, Reg Z, the note and mortgage became void. It's done. It's over. If the borrower wants to come back and uh, and reinstate it for any reason, he basically has to get together with somebody who is the lender or creditor and execute new documents. Because anything less than that leaves the void note and mortgage. These are technical points, and you need a lawyer to put them over 
the, the line in, in the scrimmages in court. I really caution people not to go pro se on this, just like I cautioned the same thing back in 2007, 2008, 2009. But I recognize also that it's hard to find lawyers and uh uh, there are not many of us that have really studied this issue in detail. So the Supreme Court answers many of, uh, of the questions that I've been receiving with the following words, and I quote, Section 1635A nowhere suggests a distinction between disputed and undisputed rescissions, much less that a lawsuit would be required for the latter, end quote. So the fact that the rescission is disputable, that it could be attacked, does not mean that it shouldn't be sent. And before we look at equitable tolling, as a doctrine, let's look at what most people call the closing and what I call just a meeting. Equitable tolling is a doctrine that basically says that if the aggrieved party was deprived of the correct information by the party on the other side of the transaction, then the party who intentionally blocked the borrower's right to find out that information should not benefit from their own misconduct. It's an equitable doctrine. But before we go into that, let's look at the issue. We'll see if we have time. Let's look at the issue of when there was consummation of the so-called loan because that's the wording of the statute. We have to go by the statute, express wording of the statute, as restated by the Supreme Court. And we look at that consummation because until the closing agent actually received funds and received them from or on behalf of the originator, the party on the note, and the party who supposedly is secured by the mortgage or deed of trust, there is no consummation. But the borrower doesn't know that. Borrowers think when they leave that title agent's office, they just closed they don't realize that they didn't close, that they, in essence, made an offer to close. They were invited to attend a meeting at some office. Now, sometimes there were people who came to their door at 12 o'clock at night, but let's take it in the more conventional sense and say that they were invited to attend a meeting at which they signed a bunch of papers including a note and mortgage. The originator is usually not in attendance, which is interesting because that varies from what the procedure was years back. The closing agent, who's usually a title agent, takes the signed documents into escrow. And somewhere in that pile of documents you signed, you basically... Uh, have that statement of the escrow that you signed and authorizing the title agent to make disbursements, et cetera. 
At some later time, the alleged loan is funded by a wire transfer from an unknown source. The borrower believes that the originator is loaning the money. In truth, it was almost always a table-funded loan, which is predatory per se, according to the Truth in Lending Act. And as a table-funded loan, that's a loan in which the name of the actual lender was actively concealed from the borrower, and the actual loan was not funded until sometime after the meeting. Later, the mortgage is recorded, and the note is released from escrow and sent to someone whom the closing agent assumes or believes to be authorized to receive it. When was the consummation? That's a question of fact. And that is something that has to be proved by the bank. Now, if you send a letter which says, I hereby rescind the loan that was consummated on January 31st, 2006, you're admitting that that's when the loan was consummated and you've probably blown your three-year statute of limitations argument equitably or otherwise. This is why lawyers are necessary to make sure you don't admit yourself into oblivion. So later, the successors to the loan documents will allege that the loan closing was consummated at the time of signing. But that's not true. If there was a consummation at all, it didn't occur until hours, days, weeks, sometimes months, or even years after that meeting. It is a question of fact as to when the alleged loan was consummated, when the liability of the borrower arose, and to whom the liability was owed. And if there was a table-funded loan, there might have been no consummation at all. Instead, whoever the real lender is might have some claim to quantum merit or unjust enrichment to get their money back. But if they raise that claim, they cannot do it using the note and mortgage. You cannot make a claim on an instrument that is void. And it's void if the rescission was placed in the mail. When does the three-year period begin for rescission? Is there a time when the borrower is prohibited by statute from sending the notice of rescission? Quick answer, no. And what happens if some company steps up and does comply and then asks for the money? They don't have to object to the rescission. They can agree. If rescission is effective when mailed, who can vacate it? Quick answer, only a judge. If you read the Jesenowski decision carefully, you will see that the court is using simple logic, and that is all that I am actually doing, although I'm doing it in very technical terms, unfortunately required by the circumstances. They drew the distinction between the effectiveness of the rescission and whether it was timely. I didn't make that distinction. They did And the reason is that they knew that the statute of limitation is often waived intentionally because of some strategy by one or both parties. It's something that has to be raised. 
your normal lawsuit, the statute of limitations is an affirmative defense. You can't simply get a dismissal because the documents indicate that the statute may have run. You have to allege as an affirmative defense, as an affirmative pleading, that the statute of limitations has run. And that's why I say that a rescission is effective because the Supreme Court says so, because the statute says so, because the Federal Reserve says so, but it is subject to attack if they file timely, if they establish, they, the banks, if they establish standing, and if they plead and prove their case. If it the, the U.S. Supreme Court does not have to be right in order to be final. You don't have to agree with them. But the fact is, you have to they say. They've made the law of the land. The argument is over. If it were otherwise, it wouldn't make any difference what a legislature passed as law. This simply, this simple fact that the rescission is effective on the date of mailing is something that most people are finding incredibly difficult to wrap their heads around, especially lawyers who were trained in law school on common law rescission, which has a whole different set of rules. Now, quick discussion on why rescission could be the ultimate discovery tool I've already alluded to. If the bank wants to vacate the rescission rather than comply with the TILA requirements, which are cancellation of the note, satisfaction of the mortgage, and disgorgement of all monies that were paid in, if they want to do that, then they have to prove their standing, as I said. They have to prove the loan. They have to show that the loan was actually made by the party on the note or that the party on the note was acting for somebody else who was disposed to the borrower. They can't do that. But let's say they could. Then they have to prove that the uh, uh, that they had standing because they were a successor probably three or four deep, um, or they're claiming to be in the position of successor, and they would have to show actual transactions in which the loan was purchased from a party who actually made the loan. They can't do that. So all those times that you sent the qualified written request, the debt validation letter, and you got nothing back, and you had no way to get the information, this gets you the information because ultimately if they want to contest the rescission, that's what they have to prove. They have to prove that they are there. They, they are in court. They are filing within the 20-day limit and that they are the right party to be filing because they are the ones who would suffer financial injury as a result of nonpayment. And if they're not the ones who are who would suffer as a result of uh, uh, the non-payment, as they're alleging, then they have no business being in court. And when they prove they when they have to plead and prove consummation, 
They have to show the loan. They have to show when it was funded, when it was complete, because it's at that moment that the loan contract, if there ever was one, what they're, what's going to happen as these cases progress is that it's going to be obvious that either they have to accept the rescission as it is, or they're going to be proving that there was no loan at all because, which they're not going to do, but they will be saying that the, they'll be saying that the the loan was not actually funded by the party on the note. And I ran over time here, so I will see you in two weeks and take a next week off. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.